Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Akiva Malaman. He's an MA student in philosophy and in the program in political and legal thought at Queen's University, Kingston. Today, we're talking with him about postmodernism and libertarianism. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Akiva. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. What makes something postmodern? That's a good question. I would say that what makes something postmodern is the extent to which it focuses on the subjective qualities of an experience and talks about the degree to which an experience is, or a point of view, is contextual and is based on one way of looking at the world. So you can see this in uh, pop in pop cultural kind of contexts. My, fa- my favorite uh, definition of postmodernism comes from The Big Lebowski, which I think if anyone wanted to understand postmodernism, it's sort of the, a really easy way to absorb it as a movie. And that's when Jeff Bridges' character, the dude, says, well, that's just kind of your opinion, man. Um, and that kind of sums up what postmodernism is about, which is that things exist in subjective perspectives. Everyone has a particular point of view. And that the way that we try to pull the world together is by forming some kind of structure or process to pull it together. So the philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard says that postmodernism is what he calls an incredulity towards meta-narratives. And in less fancy language, that means being skeptical about big stories. And big stories are the kinds of things that we use to make sense of the world, given that we are not directly able to access all the pieces of information. We exist as separate beings and agents. And, you know, big stories can range across a variety of types of things. It could be religion or political ideologies or science. And these are ways that these are frameworks that we use to kind of solve the puzzle of having a lot of information that we're exposed to and a lot of different pieces of data and experience and trying to have it all make sense. Does it deny objective reality though? Is like, is it kind of a, if you keep going down that rabbit hole, which I guess is kind of an interesting metaphor because there's some interesting elements in Alice in Wonderland, but does it end up saying, well, it's all opinion, man, and therefore there's no such thing as objective reality? So I guess as the, um, as, as you might expect with something like postmodernism, it depends on the theorist. So some, po- I, I, what I, I sometimes distinguish between what I call hard postmodernism and soft postmodernism. Hard postmodernism is represented by theorists like Jacques Derrida or maybe Michel Foucault. And that says that there's no such thing as reality. There's no such thing as truth. There's just perceptions and what people make of it. And it's kind of pointless to talk about. The softer version of postmodernism is just that reality exists, but because we exist as subjective agents with our, within our own minds and we don't access the world directly, it's really, really hard to get at it. And so we need process, intermediary processes to try and get at whatever is out there. And I tend to subscribe to the softer version. That sounds awfully Kantian in a way. And, and you tie postmodernism originating to, to Kant or growing out of his ideas. So can you tell us a bit about what Kant thought and how that eventually turned over the years into what we today call postmodernism? Sure. So 
in the Age of Enlightenment, which of which Kant is kind of the main philosophical exemplar, one of the primary figures, you have a whole bunch of people talking about what does it mean to think rationally? What does it think? What does it mean to be able to observe and experience the world? Right? Because you have this whole response in the Enlightenment to the notion that the way that we understand the world is through religion, through systems of authority and mysticism. And so there's this emphasis on actually what we should be doing is looking at the world, world through processes of logic and reason by doing experiments, the rise of science, that kind of thing. Um, but inevitably within that, once you start examining the role of reason, the role of empirical examination, you start uncovering what its limits are, what people as, as beings are capable of thinking through and of understanding and experiencing. And Kant famously argued that although we have a tremendous capacity for rationality and he's sort of famous for thinking of reason in incredibly strong ideal terms, he thought that our ability to experience the external world is highly limited. And he distinguishes between two realms, what he calls noumena and phenomena. So noumena is everything that's going on outside of us, what he calls the thing in itself, right? What it actually is. And phenomena is what's going on in your head, the kind of representations that you get. So, you know, when you look at an object, you're not really seeing that object. You're seeing kind of the combination of light as it bounces off it and then goes through your cornea and then your brain receptors have to process it. That would be like a more cognitive science way of talking about it. But for Kant, it's more like that our our processes of thought, our minds as these sort of agents, as, the, as these things that think and process are not in direct relationship to other things. It's, it's a self-contained unit. So the way that this arrives at postmodernism is by people sort of following in the Kantian trajectory of being skeptical about what we can directly experience and then going beyond Kant about how much we can logically reason how good we are at pulling different facts and pieces of information together and sequencing them in a way that's accurate or makes the most sense. And so what happens is you develop a tradition in what's known as continental philosophy, and we can talk about the different streams of philosophy if it becomes important, uh, called phenomenology. And what phenomenology does is try to examine the way that our experience of the world and our consciousness relate to the world that it is. And so it's a lot of examination of what is consciousness, what is the nature of experience, how does that tell us, what does that tell us about the world around us? And emerging out of that is the concept of postmodernism, which is that what we do in order to make sense of the world around us is construct systems of belief, narratives, stories to try and pull all these different things together. How does this work because you hear postmodernism often, and you kind of brought up a little bit, but you hear it described in an artistic sense, like some very strange piece of art, uh, and saying, "Well, that's really postmodern." And and actually, Aaron and I met in a class that was pretty much a postmodernism class about science fiction and fantasy. And I remember the professor brought up what you had brought up with Leotard's incredulity toward the meta narrative, but as a literary device that you like in modernism, you have situations where saying the great Gatsby, you may not believe the narrator, Nick, is that his name in the great? Uh, you may not believe the narrator, but postmodernism, you may not believe 
the narrator's entire backstory and view uh, looking like viewpoint and class and ideology like the narrator himself they think he's telling the truth but his entire sort of life and system is kind of a lie um is that kind of a accurate way of how it would be put onto literary and other types of artistic things yeah so if you think about artistic movements right they tend to reflect certain ways that people in a culture are processing things so literary modernism tends to think about, first of all, the idea of narratives as focused on individuals and individuals telling their stories rather than as part of a group. And that's, you know, what distinguishes something like novels from, you know, Greek mythology or other like things that are about people that are swept up by fate kind of situations. And then the movement in later period of modernism, you see this in Gatsby and James Joyce and other people, and then proceeding into postmodern fiction like David Foster Wallace um, and Thomas Pynchon is that these narrators, not only we focus on these particular individuals, but that these individuals are biased and they see things from a particular point of view. And you get this concept of the unreliable narrator. And they may have psychological biases or class biases or gender biases or, or whatever it happens to be. So it's kind of an artistic reflection of the way that people experience the world in their culture and I think the way that society has evolved in particularly the developing world, but I th probably the world over. And, but I think there's also a kind of interplay between the literary component of postmodernism and the us as real people experiencing the world, because the focus within literature on the nature of stories and on the idea that what, what, what something is or what what a series of events is, is a story or is some kind of narrative, is something that we're telling, creates a point of view in which it's possible that it's not something as it is, but it's a way that something is being described or was being told. And so I think that's probably also why you see greater appreciation for postmodernism in, let's say, English departments than you do in certain kinds of philosophy departments, what we call analytic philosophy versus continental philosophy. On the one hand, a lot of what you're describing seems almost mundane. And what I mean by that is, yes, of course, our, our experiences are mediated by our senses. And, and yes, of course, we are influenced by the beliefs and values that we were brought up in. We may not have, you know, we didn't have control over those were, were products of our environment and our social circles and the ideas that, that dominate those. But postmodernism often feels like it goes, it goes a step beyond that and, and brings this same sort of skepticism about narratives and, and discourse to, to the very nature of reason itself. And that seems to me to be one of the real jumping off points for a lot of a lot of people who reject postmodernism is they see it as anti-reason. So is is postmodernism anti-reason? No, I don't think so. I think postmodernism is just taking the idea of subjectivity really, really seriously. I think a lot of people who will admit that they have biases or that they come at things from a particular perspective still basically feel like they know what's what's what and what's happening. And what's postmodernism does is say, let's think about how extensive the process 
is of your subjectivity, of the way that you're situated, of the way that you're looking at the world. And so that is going to inherently constrain the way that you process information and the way that you make connections. But it's not inherently anti-reason per se. It just points out the limitations of reason. And I think this is actually something that uh, a lot of libertarians can appreciate, at least libertarians of a certain type, especially in the Austrian tradition, following in the work of people like F.A. Hayek or Michael Polanyi or the late Don Lavoie, who recognize that we exist in a culture, cultural context, and that cultural context evolves and shapes the way that we understand our lives and the institutions within which we're embedded. And not all of that can be easily parsed out in a rational manner and can be very, very complicated and can have a lot of information that we are not able to access. So it's less about whether we're capable of reasoning, period, and more about how much can that reasoning process accomplish? There's one thing that you hear a lot when you, sometimes in a mocking manner, but but I've heard people say it seriously, but the idea of social construction, everything is socially constructed, the social construction of, I mean, you could probably go to a library at a university and find the social construction of X for almost anything, science, obviously gender, uh, you could, it could, goes down. I think I did that one time in Boulder. What is that? What does that general concept of social construction uh, mean? So social construction is an idea that's often linked to postmodernism, although I wouldn't say they're identical, but it's something that postmodernism, if you, if you accept postmodernism as an epistemological worldview, uh, you know, a theory of knowledge, then it, it kind of arises naturally, which is that a lot of the things that we think are true about the world are things that we made up. Right? They're socially constructed. They're created by society rather than being natural to the world as it is. So you can talk about this in a couple of ways that I think each of which I think are slightly different, but there's certainly a, a, a through line. And one is sort of the natural world and the processes of things like science and, and the laws of science. And the others are how people relate to each other in society. So social categories like gender or class or race. And all of those have to do with the idea that, you know, in order to understand the world, whether it's our natural world or our social world, we create categories, we create um, ideas or concepts that help us navigate it. But that doesn't necessarily mean, and so this is one of the big misconstruals, is that the, the idea that sort that because people made something up, that it's not true, or it's just kind of the world of our imaginations. And I don't think this is a re, uh, actually a particularly fair reading, because if you think about the world that we live in, right, um, th- you know, systems of law, systems of property rights, the concept of money, right, these all have a tangible reality for us in our daily lives, in the way that we, in the way that we interact. When we think about the scientific process, this is a process that someone invented, having a hypothesis and testing it and so on and so forth. So we made these things up, but they obviously provide value to us, and they obviously contribute a great deal to what makes our world function. But they're just not independent of human societies. Can you give an example of the kind of thing – I mean, of course, like money is a social construction, and our laws are a social construction, property rights, all of that. But can you give an example of the kind of thing that like most people would not think of as a social 
construction that they would think of as real and objective in the world, but that a postmodernist would say no is in fact socially constructed and what that what that would mean in practice. So I think it depends on your vantage point, right? Like I think even the statement that property rights are socially constructed would be controversial to like a natural rights theorist, right? Um, or the notion that gender is socially constructed, especially within the whole kind of cultural back and forth about the trans community and their, you know, role and the, whether they should have rights and all that stuff, um, you know, is a ma major political issue and is basically a debate about do the social meanings, the, the constructs that we apply to people, can, can those be meaningful and real in some sense? So it depends on, you know, I don't think there's one thing that everyone is going to find very controversial or not. It just depends on the perspective. One thing that might be more controversial than, say, gender is science. So a postmodernist would argue that science is not an objective process of measuring the world, but is a process of doing observations, observations and experiments on the basis of certain basic set of assumptions, right? So you have the systems of Newtonian physics or Einsteinian physics, or you have the notion of the basic laws of motion and matter and that different physical things interact with each other. These are all basic assumptions that we make in order for scientific experiments to happen. And that is a, that's a framework that we, that we created. It's not something that, that we, that is just obvious from looking at the world. So for example, if I drop a pen and you, and I want to explain why it fell, I could easily say that the reason it fell is because when I let go of it, a bunch of invisible fairies grabbed it and pulled it to the ground. Or I could say it's because there's this thing called gravity and it's this kind of force that has to do with the interaction of different objects moving in, um, away from each other or, you know, di in, in different, um, angles to each other. And that creates, um, pressure for things to, to move in particular directions. And both of those are just kind of abstract assumptions. And we don't know per se that, that they're correct. But what we do is say that gravity helps us explain Gravity as connected to this larger notion of the laws of motion and physical laws helps us explain much more of the universe than positing a bunch of invisible things. Is this all morally nihilistic? Um, on some level, you see that some postmodern thought, maybe some earlier stuff that could be sort of proto-postmodern, on the moral side could be re rebelling against the very, very Western ethnocentric morality of say the 19th and 18th century that there were, you know, savages in the jungles and white men were doing the correct thing and there's one right way of doing things. Uh, but then people say, well, you know, you have to take into account the cultural viewpoint and where they're coming from and not make these pro proclamations. But eventually you keep doing that and you get to saying something like, well, female genital, genital mutilation is just your opinion, man, or Nazism is just your opinion, man, and no real ability to critique it and say, no, it's actually wrong. Right. So this is one of the kind of classic worries about postmodernism, more so than the scientific or epistemic stuff. It's the, the moral question. And I think to some extent, postmodernism casts important doubt on the clear objectivity of certain assumptions about ways of behaving. Right. So if you think about 
the ways that Europeans decided arbitrarily that native people were savages and forced them to adopt various, you know, uh, norms and customs. Or you think about the way that we used to treat gay people or trans people. Um, those are all reflective of the uh, notion that we know that there is one correct way to be and behave. And that obviously ends up imposing a lot of harm and violence and rights violations on people in a way that's obviously pretty, pretty horrific. But you're right that there is obviously some end point in which that amount of relativizing, which is, I think, the, the primary, the primary process that postmodernism does has an end point. And when you think about how to, how to arrive at a set of ethical judgments within postmodernism, I think like with all other questions, you need to ask, what am I trying to accomplish with this enterprise? Right? So if you're thinking, how, what am I doing in science? You want to ask, you know, how, how does this help me understand the world and connect different natural processes? And when you think about morality, you want to ask, how does this give me guidance on understanding my values, the range of my values, where they apply, and how should I treat other people? Because ultimately, I think morality is about how other people should be treated. And you can see that in really any ethical framework, whether that's consequentialism, deontology, virtue ethics, really any ethical system is about how other people should be treated. And so you want to ask, does an ethical system address the kinds of problems or questions that we have about morality and about how people should be treated that line up with the set of values and the discourse that exists within human communities. How does rights fit into this? Because that seems like the real worry is that if, even if we're, if we're asking questions about what morality is for and what we're hoping to get out of it, that introduces a level of ambiguity that rights become or not rights morality becomes a a means to an end um but but rights exist as you know as knows it called them side constraints they're saying no matter what our ends we're pursuing there are certain things that you you simply can't do there are certain means that you simply can't undertake to get there is there a tension there or is there a way to ground or permit strong notions of individual rights within a postmodern framework? So this is a really good question. And I think you have to go back to, before you, you talk about just what is morality for, you have to ask, how, in what way does morality exist? Right? So if you think about why is it that I can say the word morality or ethics, and you and Trevor know what I'm talking about. It's because we have a common set of feelings or intuitions that people should be treated in a particular way. We have this sense, this, this moral sense, right? Um, that, you know, you find all over Adam Smith talks about it in the theory of moral sentiments and lots of other people. And when we examine that moral sense, we find that there are certain recurring concerns, like, for example, respecting other people, giving them their due, giving them their space, right? We have this notion that people are not arbitrary, that, they're, that, they, that they deserve something like dignity or respect. These are words that we use to talk about the notion that they're not just objects. This is a sense that we have. And so when you talk about rights, 
you think, I tend to think about them as ways of formalizing the intuition that people deserve consideration, right? They deserve consideration in allowing them to be expressive in their speech, in controlling the objects in their environment, so property, in who they associate with, you know, what religion they follow, all those kinds of things. So you start with the intuition that people are not objects and people are sentient and that matters to us. And because that matters to us, we need to have a way of talking about how that respect is concretized in all kinds of domains, whether that's speech or property or anything else. Now, people listening up to this point who maybe have never heard of postmodernism say, well, this sounds you know, at least interesting and, and something that, you know, should be on the table and things I've thought of before. And then they might be thinking, so why is it so damn left wing? Like, why is there, why does it seem like postmodernism is almost a, a branch or handmaiden of left wing, if not radical left wing philosophy? Is there a sort of a necessary connection there? So I don't think there's a necessary connection at all. And I, I think there's actually been some fa fantastic work, especially in the libertarian spaces with postmodernism. Um, I mentioned the work of Hayek before, although he's not an explicit postmodernist, I think his view of reason and empiricism has a lot of overlap. And I think you see this also in the work of people like Deirdre McCloskey, who talks about the ways that culture and rhetoric shape our, shape our worldviews. Uh, she's also applied this to the actual practices of economics uh, in her book, The Rhetoric of Economics, and the work of Michael Polanyi. A lot, lot, there are lots of people, particularly in the Austrian tradition, who have used this kind of framework to, to great effect. Um, so I don't think there's any necessary connection, because postmodernism is not a view about politics. It's a view about what we can know. And that can apply any number of things about politics. As to why it why it's associated with the left, I think part of this is a branding thing, right? So postmodernism happened to be invented by certain people in the academy, many of whom were leftist or socialist, and it thereby got associated with, you know, Marxism and feminism and all this other stuff. And there's this kind of tribal thing where postmodernism is part of this package of those things that those lefty academic radical types are advocating for and it all gets squashed together even though if you break down what these what these different ideas are they don't necessarily have a lot of consonants so for example you know you hear this phrase that i think originated with jordan peterson but is pretty common on kind of the, the internet right which is uh postmodern neo-marxism is supposedly prevalent in the academy which if you think about it, it's kind of a nonsensical phrase because Marxism is a very specific view that society it functions in a very particular way, right? There's a hierarchy of classes and there's people, the capitalists that own means of production and they oppress the workers, the bourgeoisie, right? There's a very specific structure to society and postmodernism questions whether that explanation is actually true. So pairing them together doesn't really make sense. So some of it is about um, branding. But to some extent, it is also because the people who came up with postmodernism used it as a tool to question certain structures within society that they were concerned about as leftists. So, you know, the work of people like 
Judith Butler on gender or Michelle Foucault on things like sexuality and the prison system and uh, mental health issues are all ways of using the methods of postmodernism and social construction to talk about the role of power in human societies and to ask if things are potentially constructed or made up by people or is a narrative that we've developed, it's also very possible that they're being used in order to perpetuate oppression. This isn't inherently true. It's possible that it's not. But the, I think they demonstrated a number of instances, and particularly in instances that libertarians ought to be friendly to, that these kinds of frameworks can be used to violate people's rights and to stigmatize people, to label people as deviant. So you actually see a lot of crossover between the work of someone like Thomas Saz on mental health and someone like Michel Foucault, who both think that a lot of the things that we label as quote-unquote mental illnesses are stigmatization of people who are different rather than real science. But, I mean, there is something to be said about postmodern neo-Marxism in the sense, and I like that you brought up Saz and Foucault because I've, I've spoken on that before, but it, that Marxism can fit into postmodernism as being the predominant way by which the meta-narrative is kind of explained and analyzed. And that seems to be quite common uh, in the academy. And maybe they learn them in different classes. They learn postmodernism in their English or literary criticism class, and they learned Marxism in their political theory class. But then you can combine them together and say that, oh, the reason why this meta-narrative of gender is – so, you know, something we should not trust is because of sort of Marxian type forces. But I do think that you were right that you could put in, you could put in libertarianism and say, well, no, the real power structure that you should be concerned with that helped create this narrative and framework is actually the government rather than the bourgeoisie. But there's, there d does seem to be some connection between Marxism and postmodernism, maybe not necessary, but at least in terms of socially or just observed connection. Yeah, sociologically, I think there's a there's a, ro a lot of connection, and um, so the book I'm about to mention, I think, is actually a pretty p bad book and doesn't do service to postmodernism at all. But Stephen Hicks's explaining postmodernism argues that postmodernism happened because there were a bunch of socialist intellectuals who were kind of traumatized by Stalin and the purges and failures of the Soviet Union and decided. Well, if this narrative turned out to be a failure, then screw narratives. Like, let's give up on them. And so as a sociological explanation, I think that actually makes a lot of sense. And certainly, you know, people who are concerned about power are going to then, you know, be congenial and then develop a way that power can uh, be manipulated through narratives and so forth. But it really depends on the view that you adopt, because orthodox Marxism is not postmodern. But people who are postmodern can then later conclude that the way that the world uh, functions is through this you know, struggle between classes. And certainly, I think the focus on power is significant. You know, I, I'll do kind of a small self-plug. One of my more recent essays for libertarianism.org was talking about the connections between how leftists see power and how libertarians see power. And I think what unites both of these groups between, you know, us libertarians and people on the left is that we care about power. We care about people controlling other people, whether 
have people being morally equal and being able to make their own independent choices. Now, we might conclude different things about the roles of markets or property, but there's a shared moral intuition about not using people as means to an end. How does argument work within a postmodern framework? And what I mean by that is if everything is a narrative and our world is reduces to competing narratives, it's hard to see how you convince people. So Trevor and I for 20 years have been having voluminous and heated arguments about the merits of Batman versus Daredevil. <laughs> and the, the narrative of Batman versus the narrative of Daredevil. We can't both and be one right, us, Aaron. <laughs> one of us is obviously right. It's me. But but it's it's hard to speak in terms of like, well, the narrative of Batman is true and the narrative of Daredevil is false. But if everything is narratives, when we get out into the world, into into you know, subjects that matter more than comic book superheroes, how do I, as someone who thinks that, you know, we ought to structure government in this way versus that way, how do I engage in an argument with someone who disagrees with me in, in an effort to try to make the world better if that person's response can be, look, you've got your narrative and I've got mine? First, Akiva, Batman or Daredevil? Oh, Batman for sure. Oh, gosh. Like, okay. by a mile. <laughs> so, okay. you know, it, if, if I'm the, you know, um, the only truly objective one, you know, let's pretend, um, then, then Batman for, for sure. Um, okay. I think he, his, like the, the amount of emotional depth and psychological issues that get raised in Batman, uh, especially by kind of the eighties, you know, gritty revival by all the, the Brits is superior to most of what has been published in Daredevil comics. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll agree to disagree, but on Aaron's question, you can be, you can be wrong about that and then write about the next thing you say. <laughs> Well, you know, if postmodernism is true, I might be wrong about everything. So who knows? Exactly. Um, so how, how do we debate? Yes, it's just my opinion, man. So I think Aaron's question is 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 is, is a really great one, and is kind of the like the tragic aspect if you adopt a postmodern worldview, which is that there are going to be situations in which the the worldviews that we have, the narratives that we have, are so different that it's going to be really really hard to come to terms. Right. So it, Aaron and I had talked about this in a, in a previous conversation. The amount of distance between someone like me and someone like Patrick Deneen or Adrian Vermeule is enormous. And it would be really, really hard for us to come to an agreement, but it will be easier for us to have a conversation than it will about politics than it will about Batman versus Daredevil because the criteria for Batman versus Daredevil is kind of just an, a, an aesthetic experience and doesn't have a lot of reasons that can be translated beyond preference. It's kind of just, I like this thing in the narrative. Whereas arguments about how government should be structured engage with, A, facts about social science to the extent that those can be objective. But to, to the extent that we have any facts at all, they engage with that. And secondly, they engage with the process of moral reasoning. And what I think distinguishes morality from something like aesthetic preferences is that you can offer arguments. If I like chocolate ice cream, I just like it. I can't really argue about why it's good. But if I think it's wrong to kill someone um, and that certain things constitute murder and certain, certain things don't, I have to give you an argument about that. And we can have a conversation and I convince you to see things in a particular way. 
and the same can apply to government, right? So if you think about what I would what I would consider to be one of the better forms of of libertarian argument is asking people to rely on their common sense intuitions about how we ought to treat other people and then apply that to government, right? And this is something that the philosopher Michael Humer does to great effect in his book, The Problem of Political Authority, which is just that if government did any of the things that, uh, if, if people did any of the things that government does, we would call that, you know, horrendous and immoral. And certainly, you know, you see that play out in real time as, you know, agents of the state are literally kidnapping people off the streets of Portland. So I think that what allows us to have a conversation about, about political, social, cultural, you know, moral issues is that we can, first of all, we have a shared set of intuitions and then we can have arguments about them. And then in some way we can come to bridges of some kind and they're not going to be perfect. They never will be. But the process of what postmodern theorists call intersubjectivity, which is that each of us puts forward our perspective, and together we kind of fuse something out of that, and something happens. And there is a certain amount that can be created. So, you know, for all the, the polarization that's happening and the fighting between Republicans and Democrats, they all still agree on this thing called the United States of America in, to, in, in some way. And that there's a government and there's a system of laws and there's a constitution, you know, no matter how many violations of the, that constitution we might complain about. So there are meaningful concepts in our conversations that then serve as building blocks for creating a society and talking about what we should be doing. It, it, that's, that sounds theoretically nice. Um, I mean, I've had debates with many postmodernists and I, I have many affinities for postmodern thought, but, but at the end, it's difficult for me to call myself just a postmodernist because I do think that ultimately it's difficult to find a bottom, find some sort of truth that is not purely subjective. And so, you, you know, you said we have these beliefs about the constitution and things, but of course, right now the constitution is quite under attack and, and from people, some of them had learned a lot of this stuff in universities being taught that everything is narrative. So when you say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, the response is, well, that was said by rich white men in the 18th century with their own narrative. And therefore I don't have to listen to it as opposed to actually dealing with whether or not that is true. And maybe, maybe this is just a communication problem and a, and a problem with our schismatic environment, but it's very, very hard ultimately to get many, if not most postmodernists that I, who have been sort of trained at many of these universities to have a discussion about whether something like that is something we should all believe in. Right. So I, I should say, and I want to push back a little bit. I don't think all of those people are postmodernists. I think some of them are critical theorists, which is a form of Marxism applied to culture. Um, and, you know, different kinds of theories of gender and power, which can overlap with postmodernism, but are not the same. Good point. Because those theories conclude that certain systems must inherently be a system of power. Postmodernism just raises it as a possibility. Whereas something like critical theory says everything in the world that you think is true is just a product of the capitalist class. Um, and postmodernism just says this is a possible explanation. Um, but to the extent that they are postmodernists, um, and here I'm going to be, I, I guess, a little bit harsh, some of this is just lazy thinking. These are people who have just decided that 
because something emerges from a particular context, that means I don't actually have to think about the idea, right? So jo Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. He raped his slave, Sally Hemings. Those are bad things. I'm not a fan of them. But that doesn't mean that the concept of human rights that he puts in the Declaration of Independence isn't a concept that we can then discuss independently of Thomas Jefferson. Um, I don't think that it relies on Thomas Jefferson's behavior in order to be thought about. So to some extent, this is about say, seeing that people are, are, you know, morally inconsistent or problematic or concluding that because people did thing X, then thing Y must also be a product of that thing. And to me, this is just a kind of tribalism that everything that someone produces must inherently be a product of power. And certainly, you know, as a libertarian and as a kind of postmodernist, you know, Hayek Foucaultian, I sometimes call myself, um, I'm attuned to that, but not everything is. And certainly just because some things are doesn't mean everything is. I want to pick up quickly on something you just mentioned, which was that a lot of the people who get branded as postmodernists aren't, in fact, postmodernists. And so in this case, some of them are, are critical theorists. If postmodernism from the perspective of conservative America and and people like Jordan Peterson or places, publications like Quillette, you would get the sense that everyone in academia is a hardcore, specifically postmodernist. Um, and and that it's instead, it seems like postmodernism is largely limited. There's not that many postmodernists in philosophy departments. Um, there's, there's certainly not many in economics departments, history departments, and so on. You mostly are going to find them in English departments, and it's not even going to be most of the people in English departments. And as you're describing it, postmodernism is is a powerful tool, but also not as universally corrosive as it sometimes is made out to be. So why does postmodernism specifically act as such a boogeyman for the right for intellectual dark web sorts? Like why why that specifically? Why are they so terrified of it? And why does it why does it get made out to be, you know, the driving force uh, certainly among the left in America? Right. So I think that like I mentioned earlier, some of this is about tribal affiliation. They're not really thinking about ideas. They're thinking about the people who hold them. So all this, these post, these lefties are postmodern and they have these lefty ideas and they kind of get lumped together. So that's, you know, the most basic kind of lazy level thinking. What I do actually think is, you know, at least some percentage of people who operate this way. But I think a more substantive reason is that postmodernism and kind of attendant theories of social construction and of power question whether some of the elements of society that people on the right take as natural are in fact natural, right? So people on the right may believe that gender is a binary and that the only thing we can talk about is biological sex and we can't talk about a sex-gender succinction or more radically that both of those things are socially constructed, both sex and gender, although I'm more agnostic about that question, or you know whether there is some kind of process of racial discrimination and uh, structures of power where white people oppress black people and categories 
that people are in that are created by society, like the concept of race, which is also socially constructed, and are you are are then utilized on behalf of power. So I think some of it has to do with the questioning that things that they think are natural may not actually be natural, according to postmodernism. And the other is that not only might they not be natural, but they might be a tool of oppression. And because right wingers tend to be critical of views that talk about power relations and tend to be defenders of social hierarchy, defenders of traditional systems, they naturally see postmodernism as supplying that intellectual background. But I don't even think that's necessarily true because you see right-wingers criticize things that are put by forward by the mainstream left or by libertarians as, you know, radical lefty postmodernism like, you know, being tolerant of gay people or inclusive of gay people um, or Black Lives Matter support, you know, as some kind of crazy radical Marxist thing. And that, I think, all has to do with the perception that anything that is not a rather dogmatic view of society and of the structures that we exist inside and is critical of the possibility of power relations sees any critique of that as kind of a radical, you know, left-wing takeover and then gets smeared in a kind of McCarthyist way, you know, as communist, like literally. Why should or should libertarians be more, more postmodern or learn from postmodern or read postmodern thought? I think the main reason that we should be friendlier to postmodernism, I don't, you know, I don't think postmodernism is a prerequisite for libertarianism by any means, but I think that po- libertarians can benefit a lot from postmodernism because postmodernism questions whether when someone tells you something, it really is like that and whether they are trying to control social systems by offering that story, right? So there's a, there's a really nice short piece by Casey Given. Uh, which I linked to in my article about postmodernism called the state as a meta narrative and has a lot of overlap, I think, with your concept of the statrix, Trevor, which is that there's this kind of all encompassing idea that everything needs to be solved by government and we encourage the steady growth of this machine until it takes over not just our lives, but our consciousness. And so what postmodernism does is allow us to ask, whether this, A, to point out that this is a narrative, that this is a worldview assumption that we are framing as essential for society, and then to question whether it's necessary. And I think that's true, you know, not just in terms of government per se, but any expression of power where some people try to control what other people are doing. And in general, whether society can be managed as easily as we think it has been. And I, I think a lot of the things that, that libertarians raise about the limits of knowledge, about how well bureaucrats in Washington can understand all the different things that are going on in America, let alone the world, the failure of state building in, you know, in our foreign interventions, all kinds of things are things that we can that that we that postmodernism is very useful for understanding because it helps us really unpack the ways in which people don't know as much as they think they do and in fact are not capable of 
understanding all of those things and rationally planning and systematizing and organizing society and offers us a way to be skeptical of the kind of technocracy and tendencies towards control and authoritarianism that you see in government institutions and in ad- and a lot of policies that people advocate for. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.